while, here we are as a church family, sinners, as we just sang, Jesus led us home. And I was reminded as we were singing that song that both my wife and I did not grow up in Christian homes. Thus, when we became forgiven followers of Christ, we had a lot to learn. We didn't know what it looked like to parent. We didn't know what it looked like to have a Christian marriage. We didn't know what it looked like to live the Christian life. And so you'll frequently hear me say this, is that the church is a hospital. And, and, and the reason I say that is because Jesus used an analogy of doctors and physicians. He said, I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Those that are whole have no need of a physician, but those that are sick. Now, um, if someone were to walk up to you and say, you're sick, you would be sort of offended. But in a way, it's true. We're all sick with the disease of sin. That's what the Bible says. Our hearts are desperately wicked. And it doesn't mean we're all a bunch of axe murderers. It just means that we're all in recovery. You're like, I thought recovery was only for addicts. Well, sin is addicting. And when you become forgiven, Christ begins the process of transforming us and we become what we call disciples. And so we advance the gospel, we're making disciples, and then we want those disciples to make disciples. And one of the ways that happens is we gather, we grow, we worship, and we hear from the word where we're exhorted and encouraged and, and taught. So as we're going through the book of Revelation, just a couple things I want to remind you. Early on, if you're not a Christian or you're a new Christian, just mark this down. Satan doesn't like it. He does not like that you're a Christian. And so the Bible actually says, Paul discipled people, 1 Thessalonians 3, I told you ahead of time, I told you ahead of time that you're going to suffer persecution. And now that it's happening, he said, I'm worried that Satan may have tempted you because of your, uh, to see if your faith is genuine. So what we're learning from the book of Revelation is that in the first century, and we've said this a number of times, the Christians, when John wrote around 90 AD, were being severely persecuted. It, this is hard for us to grasp. We're like, we got 4th of July coming up, 220 years or 225 years, somewhere around there, of freedom and so forth. And it's like, well, that's an anomaly. That's unusual. For the most part, Christians are persecuted all over the world. And so in this first century, when Christianity first began to spread, the Romans just looked at it as kind of a part of the Jews. You know, they're Jews. We don't get along with them anyway. But as time went on, they, they raised the heat because by the end of the first century in the 90s, the emperors were demanding worship. They were setting up images in areas and telling people, if you don't worship the image and, and, and the emperor, you're going to be killed. And so we read early in Revelation, there were people that were already dead, and John's writing to these churches. And so what we saw a couple weeks ago when Pastor John preached was in chapter 12, it said, Satan is waging war with the saints. He hates Christians and he's coming at us. Last week, Austin did an excellent job of explaining the first beast. And the first beast, we said, primarily represents how the, the devil uses the state, the government, to attack Christians. And that usually is headed by an individual. So when John wrote this letter, I can assure you that the first century Christians did not think of this beast as some guy who's coming thousands of years from now and we won't be here. But clearly, as it was simple to them to go, this beast is, is the emperor who's demanding us to worship him. Today, we're going to be introduced to a second beast. Now, the second beast is related to the first beast, but not the same. So let's begin in verse 11, 
where John says, I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. Now, bear in mind that this whole idea of beasts is symbolic language, okay? This was not intended for you to picture that there's a literal beast, monster. It's symbolic language. It comes right out of the book of Daniel, and Daniel clearly showed that the beasts in his images represented governments. But in this case, we had a beast coming out of the sea. This time, we have another beast coming up out of the earth. Now, who is this beast? Well, let me just start by saying this. I think that this beast related to the first beast, which is the beast, which is the government, this beast is more of the religious side of societies. Satan uses two ways to persecute the church. He uses opposition and persecution, but he also uses religious deception. So in answer to who is this second beast, I'm going to suggest that he's a religious leader or its representative of how Satan uses religion to draw people away by deceiving them, okay? So about two-thirds of the references in, Dan or in Revelation 13 come from the book of Daniel, and, and it makes perfect sense because in John's time, they're being told to worship an image of the emperor. In Daniel's time, remember Nebuchadnezzar made an image and said, you better worship me, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we ain't doing that. In John's time, there were people who called themselves Christians who were deceiving the other Christians, saying, it's okay to be immoral. It's okay to worship the beast. It's okay to do that, and you're still a Christian. In Daniel's time, he predicted, and we're going to look at a passage, that there would be people within the church who would deceive and delude and try to get people who call themselves Christians to compromise. So there's a, a real parallel here between Daniel and John. So let's talk about this second beast as we work through the passage. I said that he's a religious leader or it represents false religion. Let's start in verse 11 and I'll explain why. He says, I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. The first thing I want to note here is that this beast is mentioned several other times in the book. And guess what he's called? The false prophet. Okay? So the first beast we said is the state, usually represented by some powerful leader, whether it was Nero, whether it was Hitler, whether it was some Stalin, um, but the second beast is frequently called the false prophet. And that's my first tip and why others believe that this has some sense that his work has more to do with religion. Now, this idea of false prophets in the church was all through the New Testament. In fact, if you go back and read the letters to the, to the seven churches, many of the churches were warned about false prophets. They were warned about people who call themselves Christians. So, for example, remember it talked about the teaching of the Nicolaitans. In, in chapter 2, it talked about how the Ephesian church found out the false apostles and cast them out. It, it talked about those who were following the pagan ideas like Balaam. It even talked about how they were following teachings of Jezebel. So the idea of false religion infecting the church is a brilliant scheme of Satan, and we need to think about this. Right now, while things may change, 
The state does not yet persecute the church in America, but Satan has strongly used false teaching in the church to corrupt Christianity and to make war with the saints. And so we're going to look at this. How does he do it? Well, notice he had two horns like a lamb, and, and perhaps here the idea is that he is imitating Christ as a lamb. He's not this ferocious, horrible beast, but he's like a lamb, right? But yet, it says he spoke as a dragon. And so it, I think here the idea is that he's deceptive. He appears to be one thing when, in fact, he's led by Satan. And this is a theme that Jesus spoke of. He said, beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing. So this false prophet, whether it's an individual, and I'm going to suggest that it's more than an individual, is someone who's going to use religion especially to draw people away from God. Now, notice verse 12. It says, he exercises all the authority of the first beast. In his presence. What does that mean, in his presence? Well, again, in the Old Testament, the Bible spoke of how prophets would stand in the presence of God and then speak for God. This false imitator of Christ stands in the presence of the beast and speaks for Satan, but in the guise of religion. But then it says, he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. Now think about oftentimes when we go, oh yeah, as I'm reading this book, this is talking about some guy in the future. Think about this first century church. Right now, Asia Minor was one of the strongest areas where they were setting up emperor worship and they were persecuting people who wouldn't worship the emperor. Uh, in Steve Gregg's commentary, he quotes this. He said, no other interpretation of Revelation fits the geographical and temporal context rather than the events at Ephesus, in which the whole province was, was um, doing a series of dedication in numerous cities. So large-scale involvement of emperor worship was going on right around them, and people were being told, you need to worship the emperor. So, uh, particularly the emperor Domitian. So there was great cultural pressure they had festivities, whether it was the emperor's birthday or if, if the mission was coming to town. Everyone was required. You didn't, you didn't get an RSPVP. Everyone was required to attend these festivities and celebrate and worship the emperor. They were held in temples, civic centers, and everyone was required to participate. In fact, one of the churches that, that John wrote to, the church at Pergamum, they had... Uh, Archaeologists have discovered imperial altars where, where you can see that they were called to, to worship the emperor. And so it was not unusual that a, that a, that a town. So imagine, this is so weird, but imagine if a, a decree went out that said everyone in Yardley needs to gather at this place and bow down and, and worship an image. So you would think to yourself, I can't do that. I'm a Christian. So as they're reading this, they need encouragement. Now, who is this first beast whose fatal wound was healed? We didn't talk much about this, okay? Now, we can't say for certain who this is, but most likely, based on historical evidence, that was a reference to Nero. 
And there's a couple reasons for that. Nero, when he died, it appeared that this would be a blessing to the Christians because he had been giving Christians a hard time. He was the one who burned Rome and blamed the Christians. But when he died, there was a, a, a lull in persecution. When he died, Rome's survival as an empire was threatened. There were, there were surrounding revolutions and, and, and political upheavals, and, and there was a, a, a fear of other nations. And so it almost looked like Rome was going was gonna to kind of disintegrate, much like we sort of look at our country and go, how much longer can this country hold together? But when Domitian came to power, this, the, the, and Vespasian as well, which was another emperor, the Roman Empire righted itself, right? There was even a myth that Nero was going to come back from the dead. So think about these first century people. What would they think of the beast whose fatal wound was healed? It seems to me that it's a reference to Nero and the revival of the Roman Empire because it was looking like Rome's power was going to be broken. And now, all of a sudden, there's this incredible resurgence of its power. And remember when Austin uh, shared last week, the, the, the people like, who is like the beast? Wow, it's back in all of its power and glory. Rome is dominant again. And so when he says, don't bow down and worship the beast, don't worship an emperor, don't fall into this like Nero cult, and I would suggest Nero's not the only emperor that they were trying to worship. So, how did he get people to do this? This is interesting. Years ago, if any of you remember David Koresh, I used to call him the wacko from Waco, but it was really sad what he did, okay? David Koresh, if you remember that story, much like Jim Jones, had the capacity to lead bunches of people who, who in the guise of Christianity, followed this cult. You're like, How, what, what is it? So the, the Courier or the um, Philadelphia Inquirer called Cairn University and said, we want to do a story on that. And so they asked me this question. They said, why do these false religious leaders always have a Bible? Why do they use a Bible, right? Why don't they use, like, Satan's Bible? Why do they use a Bible? Well, it's pretty easy when you think about it. Anybody who gets up in, in American society and says the Bible's a piece of trash, but I'm religious, follow me, is not going to have the same authority, at least in the past because of the Judeo-Christian roots, as someone who says, let me explain the Bible to you. So Satan usually leads people astray because right now all over America, there are millions of or thousands of churches meeting, right? Many of them, the Bible, what are you talking about? So we're good, we're religious. But Satan steps it up. Sometimes he twists scripture, but sometimes he does something even more hideous. Look what it says. Here's how he, he deceives people. He performs great signs that he even makes fire come out of heaven to earth in the presence of men. Now, first of all, the imagery here of performing great signs would be probably a reference to Moses. Remember, Moses performed these great signs and the plagues. And then the idea of fire coming down would, would remind us of Elijah. Now, quite possible in the future, there will be an individual who can do this. However, this is not new. In the first century, they had magicians even as far back as Moses. Remember when Moses was doing signs 
the false teachers were doing magic signs. And so Satan does use miracles and signs. He has and he will. And that's why I'll just come out and say this. I think Benny Hinn is a false teacher, okay? He does not preach the gospel. But yet, in fact, his own son became a born-again Christian and has written about it. But you'll see Benny Hinn have these great crusades with signs. Now, Satan deceives people not only by twisting scripture, but sometimes by using miraculous signs. And you might go, why would God allow that? Why would God allow people to get tricked? And we're going to close today looking at a passage that says, here's why God allows that to happen. But notice what it says. He deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast. And you go, wait a minute, wait a minute. Well, that's exactly what was happening in the first century. They were making images to the emperor. They were telling them to bow down and worship the emperor. And some of them were using cunning, magical, deceitful signs, probably empowered by Satan. You're like, Satan can't do that. Oh, he can't? Read the book of Job chapter 1. Satan called fire down from heaven. He caused windstorms. He, Satan is powerful when God grants him the authority to do that. And so he deceives these people, right? And he wants them to make an image to people like Nero who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. Now look at verse 15. There was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast that the image of the beast might even speak and cause as many who don't worship the image of the beast to be killed. Now you look at that and you go, yeah, in, in the future... This guy's going to build a statue, and then the statue is going to talk, and they're going to show it on television. Everybody's going to go, oh. And I go, now let's think about that. I mean, with, with, the, with the sophistication of technology at this point, how many people do you think, if there was a statue that suddenly began talking, would go, he's real, he's God? I mean, I see that every day if I watch a Disney movie right? If you go down to Walt Disney. So I don't think it's as simple as just, he's going to get some statue to go, hi, everybody, I'm real. And everybody's going to go, let's worship him. But whatever this meant when it says he gives breath, I mean, they had magical tricks back then, even ventriloquism, false lightning. They used all kinds of things. But I think this is a metaphor. I don't think literally all of a sudden the statue's going to go, hi, everybody. And somebody goes, he breathed on me. But rather the idea is that there, Satan is going to persuade people that the emperors are God and that these images demonstrate in some way that they're real. I'll never forget one time witnessing to a Buddha, a Buddhist rather, and this guy took off, he literally took off a little trinket that he had of Buddha and he put it on my desk. It was just a little tiny thing. And he goes, this is my Lord, Lord Buddha. And I'm thinking to myself, it's just a little piece of metal. If I took out a, I wouldn't do this, but if I took out a hammer and flattened it, nothing would happen. But yet to him, this image was real, it, it, that there was a God behind this. And so I think that's the point is that Satan will persuade people to worship a human, to, to, to give their allegiance to someone on earth other than God. And as we saw last week, he uses persecution. He will cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. 
But in addition, we come to a very puzzling section. We'll spend a few moments on this. It says, he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, free men and slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. Now again, here we are 2,000 years later. We know a lot about technology and probably, you know, you've heard about the microchip that Bill Gates is going to put under your hand and in your forehead. And while that's possible, I'm not downplaying that, I find it incredibly unlikely that the people in the first century were like, yeah, they're probably going to, like, put a chip in our head and our hand and track us all around. So again, when you're learning to read the Bible, start by asking the question, what would this have meant to the people who it was written to? Before I go, oh, I know what it means. What would it have meant to them? So let's talk about this image for just for a few moments. It's Mark, rather. Um, first of all, at that time, there was a practice of branding or tattooing disobedient slaves, okay? And where would you put a brand or a tattoo to show that this was a disobedient slave? When you read the book of Philemon, you read about a disobedient slave. It was punishable by death, but often they would brand or tattoo them to sort of show, keep an eye on this guy. Where's a good place to put a brand or tattoo so that he can't hide it? On his sleeve, on his hand, or on his forehead. Pretty hard to hide a brand on your hand or forehead. Now, if this is literal, which I don't think it is, then obviously they would have had some sort of a, you know, everyone who won't worship the emperor has to get a brand or a tattoo somewhere on their hand or forehead. That's possible. In fact, there is a first century document or second century document that talks about how the emperor required people to have a certificate that demonstrated they were an emperor worshiper, right? Now think about that. In that first century, if you don't have that certificate, what will happen? Well, you could be killed. You would be ostracized by family and friends. You would clearly be persecuted. And if you showed up to purchase something in the market, if you didn't have some way of identifying yourself as an emperor worshiper, you were done. So notice what it says. So whatever this mark is, the Greek word here, karagma, for a mark, is probably figurative. Okay, I don't think it's literal. It's, it's some sort of a way of saying, in chapter 7, remember when Austin talked about how God put a seal on the forehead of his people? Does anybody look around and go, yeah, I see yours, I see. I think it's metaphorical. Those who have the seal of God are those who belong to God. Those who have the mark or seal of Satan are those who have sworn allegiance to Satan, this world, and to the things that this world encourages to seduce us away from God. But cleverly, what the world tries to do through the second beast is to say, but you're still a Christian. We're progressive now. There's new ways to think about Christianity. So you can both be loyal to the state, you can, you can go with the flow, but you can also be a Christian. And John's going, no way. No way. So, what happens if you're not going to give your loyalty to Satan, to this world? You're not going to bow down to the emperor. When each of those towns had imperial cults where they had religious priests who would call and, and, and not call them on the phone, but tell people it's time to come to this. What would you do? Particularly when you're like, well, uh, I'm, I belong to this guild or trade. I'll lose my job. 
Has anyone ever heard of someone losing their job because they were unwilling to compromise their Christian faith and go along with a certain set of ideas and beliefs? Is that stunning to think about? What would it be like to work right now, and, and I, this is not throwing anybody under the bus, what would it be like to work right now in a high level at Disney, say in, in, in corporate? What, what do you do when at work you're told you need to support this idea or this idea, particularly if, and again, I'm not throwing Disney under the bus, we could pick any large corporation, we could say Google, anything. Just what would it be like if all of a sudden you're told, you know, you have to adopt these beliefs you have to sign on to this. You can't just be a conscientious objector. So, notice what it says. Those who are unable, verse 17, he provides that no one should be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now again, I don't think they have to put their chip under the thing, say, uh, put these groceries on my visa. But rather, I think it's simply this. If you have said, I'm a baptized Christian, you're ostracized, okay? So, think about this. Austin shared with me that in some of the Middle Eastern countries that people do have certificates, and, and this is true also in, in Pakistan. And in that certificate, if you identify yourself as a Christian, you are pretty much, it's incredibly hard to, to buy, to get a job like they persecute people who identify themselves as a Christian. And that's on your paperwork, right? You have to put down, are you a Christian, right? Now, in addition to that, though, Austin shared with me that in Syria, there's persecution of Christians, not just from the government, but from some streams of Christianity that if you identify yourself as an evangelical, you will be severely persecuted. So when we read this and we go, wait, people would be unable to buy or sell, you're like, yeah, don't worry, you're not gonna be here. I mean, think about it right now. Is that hard to imagine that public school teachers at some point may be told, you have to teach this. You have to believe this. You must teach that there's no God. You must teach that there's alternative sexuality. You must, at some point, we can see that economic pressure will cause a lot of people to go, I'm okay with that. In fact, I wanna recommend a book by Al Mohler. Al Mohler has a book called We Cannot Be Silent, and he traces the sexual revolution and where we are today in America, and he shows their agenda, and he shows how he believes that particularly the issue of the LGBTQT will be the, the dividing line in the sand for Christians in America because there's a tremendous pressure to go, hey, listen, you know what? Let's be loving. Maybe we misread the Bible. It's okay to live that way and still be a believer. When in fact, sexual sins like adultery, immorality, so fornication, and homosexuality, all three of those sexual sins, the Bible says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. Those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we can see the noose tightening in American culture. And so Moeller actually makes a really insightful suggestion. He says, in their agenda 
as the LGBTQT and, and others were, were pushing this sexual revolution. They literally have a written document that states one of the things that we have to do is we have to get the clergy. If we cannot get a significant part of American clergy to agree with us, we will never succeed in transforming American culture with our new ideology. And you go, wow. I've had people come to this church and say, but when I go to that church, they tell me it's fine to do this, this, and this. Why does your church say it's wrong? Well, that's the whole point. You can find a church to tell you whatever you want to hear, right? The Bible says in the last days, men will not love the truth, but rather they will accumulate teachers after their own desires. They want people who will tell them, it's okay, you know, you're, you, you know, your wife's being mean to you, just get rid of her and trade in for a younger one. Or, or it's, it's okay, there's different ways to identify your gender and sexuality. And we're going, don't let anyone deceive you. This is what our children are being told. They're being taught that it's hateful to go by scripture. And, and partly because there have been hateful Christians who are rude and obnoxious and shouldn't treat it that way. But at the same time, it's a wake-up call. So, so let's close. He says... You have to get the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. You're like, I was going to leave, but I, I decide I'm waiting because he's going to finally solve this. Who is the 666? No one else has ever solved it, but Pastor Tom is about to solve it for you after 2,000 years. So let me just suggest big picture. There's been three broad ways, and uh, Steve Gregg and also... Uh, a, a man by the name of Beale has written a lengthy commentary. Three broad ways that people have understood this. The first way that they've done this is by using what's called gematria. It's a, it's a Jewish term where they, where they give symbolic um, value to each letter of the alphabet. So the letter B would represent the number two, the letter C would represent the number three. And throughout the history of the church, many people have tried to identify the beast by using gematria, and they come out with all kinds of, it was this guy, it was this guy, it was, it was, you know, to the point where it's like, it's so subjective, and there have been so many options, there's so many conflicting solutions, so to try to identify it with one person, I can prove that six stands for six, because technically it's not even in Greek, it's not three numbers in a row, six, 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 it's, it's 600, 66. So to try to use all this gematria, I would suggest that it's not going to help, right? We're not going to go, this stands for this, this stands for this, times three, multiply by seven, divide, take away this, and here's who it is. So the second way is that Christians in the past took it chronologically. So interestingly, in the history of the church, there was a time when they thought it stood for Islam. Now this will be shocking, but not shocking if you understand the Protestant Reformation, that there was a time in which they thought it was the papacy, right? You're like, what? Yeah, because during the Reformation, the papacy was slaughtering born-again Christians. And then I think the best way to take this is simply to say that this number is symbolic for anti-Christian power or anti-Christ and primarily for humanity. Now let me explain. Most people would agree that the number seven 
throughout the Bible, and particularly in Revelation, is the number of perfection, the number that represents God. In fact, the Holy Spirit is described as the seven spirits of God. So if, and again, this isn't like some new idea that Pastor Tom came up with, right? But that the number seven in Scripture is frequently used of God. So it certainly would make sense to use the number six to some way refer to humanity, okay? They are not God. And yet the whole essence of this chapter is that man wants to be God. That's the ultimate blasphemy, right? The blasphemous names of the beast are worship man, not God. Now, interestingly, this word, notice what it says. The number of the beast is that of a man. And to check this, I actually looked it up to make sure that this was the case. But the Greek word for man can be translated as humanity or a human being. And, and, and the authoritative Greek dictionary says this, it simply can be translated a member of the human race. And it focuses on the limitations and weaknesses of a human being. This is a Greek dictionary that's not at all even commenting on Revelation. Here is the number, right? So I think it would be better to translate it, it is the number of humanity, right? So rather than go, it's one guy who stands for this, it's, this is the essence of the world in which we live. There's, a, live. there's a raging war between God and man, headed by Satan. And Satan wants worship of himself through humanity. And how does he do it? He uses persecution and he uses deception. And it's not just one guy thousands of years from when, when, when John wrote this. So I want to conclude by just giving us a couple exhortations. Remember back in verse, verse 9 and 10 where Austin said, all right, here's the warning. If you got ears, hear, right? He's saying, look around, folks in the first century. They're, the government's trying to get you away from God. And Austin was pointing out to us, look around, Christians in the 21st century. The government's trying to get you away from God. Now I'll say the same thing, only I'll, I'll say it this way. When, when, when Daniel says, here is wisdom. In Daniel 11, or not Daniel, John says this. In Daniel 11, it has a similar situation. And it talks about a persecution from a leader. And then it says, but people within the community will lead astray and cause people to denounce the covenant. And then John says, or Daniel says this, but those who have insight, they won't do it. And he says, but many of those who have insight will fall by the sword. That's Daniel. Here, John is doing the same thing. He's going, there are people in your community, every one of your churches who are going to try to lead you away from God with false teaching. Have insight, have understanding, and you may die for it but hold to your Christian faith. But I want you to close with me by turning to 2 Thessalonians 2, and this will be my final thing I want you to think about. Many of you have probably been thinking, but won't there be a last days antichrist? Is, is this only talking about, you know, governments throughout the time? Won't there actually be a last day antichrist? Does it have to be either or? And my answer is, it doesn't have to be either or, it's both. So there will always be empires led by 
by government leaders who will to persecute Christians. And there will always be false forms of Christianity who will try to deceive people away from the faith. And maybe you've come from a church where they didn't follow the Bible, right? And you're like, a lot of what you're saying, that's not what I believe. And I urge you to read the scriptures and ask God to show you the truth. But the Bible does also teach that in the last days there will be one individual who will be the culmination of all of these examples. He will gather a united world allegiance, and in the guise of religion and power, he will lead people away. Now, you may have been taught, don't worry about it though, because you won't be here. My suggestion is, is, I'm not sure that's the case. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, they thought that the tribulation had come, the day of the Lord had begun. And rather than say to them, don't worry, you're not going to be here, Paul actually says to them, you can't be in the tribulation yet because the Antichrist hasn't been revealed. So look at verse 3. Let no one deceive you. It will not come the day of the Lord unless the apostasy comes first. Now that's happening. People are departing from Christianity like mad. But then it says, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. So he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself to be God. There is a coming person who will claim worldwide, he will demand worship, and he will persecute anybody who doesn't follow his religion. Why would anybody follow him? We'll jump down to verse 8. It says, The lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. But how's he going to trick people? It says, His coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with power, signs, and false wonders, and with all deception of wickedness. That's how he's going to get the world to worship him, with power from Satan. Well, why wouldn't people accept Jesus? We just tell them about Jesus. Hold up John 3.16 in the end zone. This is very telling in our culture. If you think that most people aren't Christians because they haven't heard John 3.16, many of the reason why most people aren't Christians in America is not intellectual, it's volitional. It's the heart. They don't want to change. They don't want to repent. They don't want to surrender to the Lord Jesus. Look what it says. It says, for this reason, or I'm sorry, verse 10, why are they deceived? Because they didn't receive the love of the truth to be saved. In other words, they heard the gospel, but they didn't want it. Well, why wouldn't they want it? For this reason, God will send a deluding influence so they might believe what is false. Wait, God's going to allow them to be deceived by someone? They're going to worship them? That's what it says. This is God's judgment because they wouldn't receive the gospel. He's going to allow Satan to deceive them. Well, why? That they might be judged because they didn't believe the truth. Look at this last phrase. But took pleasure in wickedness. You want to know why most people aren't Christians in America? It's not because they're all just like, oh, no one told me. Because they don't want to. The Bible says men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil and they don't want to come to the light. So, and we can come up with clever apologetics and, and, and we should be a witness to them and beg them, but we need to pray and ask God to send a spirit of conviction of sin upon people because at the end of the day, people are welcome if you offer them some free hell insurance. Yeah, give me that. But if you say Jesus wants to change your life and he wants to be Lord of your life, they're like, no, I, I don't want that. I like my life my way. So let us pray that as a church we offer the free, full gospel of grace that Jesus forgives and will transform you. But you must be willing to identify with him. 
you must be willing to allow him to change you, and you must be willing to leave this world and suffer the consequences as Jesus said. What good is it? Gain the world, lose your soul. Whoever wants to preserve and save his life and stay in their sin, if your right hand's causing sin, cut it off. So let's pray that God will do a great work in our culture, inviting people to the full free mercy of Jesus while we can. Amen? Thank you, Lord, for your word. And I pray that you will help us to think deeply as we raise our children, how to interact in our culture, to love people, to pray for them, to encourage them to reconsider um, the direction that they're heading. And thank you that all of your children, you've sealed us, and you will not allow the elect to be deceived, but that you will keep us until the end. And we praise and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.